Good evening. It's been a while since I was here. Last week was 4th of July. You guys had a good 4th of July? Yeah. Then I was in Napa the week before that. Michael was here and covered half of chapter 14. He was hoping to be able to come up and finish it, but he's unable to. So we're going to be picking up on chapter 14, 2 Samuel, starting around verse 20. 2 Samuel, chapter 14. David has the most dysfunctional family around. The Cardassians have nothing on him. In fact, they look tame in comparison, which is strange. You know, you, you see these reality shows and you're thinking, oh gosh, that cannot be possible. Well, they could not make a reality show like what we have been reading and people be able to comprehend it. It, it is so strange, so dysfunctional, so problematic. And just to give us a Brief recap, not to mention the multiple wives that David had, which was problematic. With that came the multiple children. And then we had Amnon, who raped his half-sister, Tamar, and then left her for just disregarded her. First, he loved her. Really, he just lusted after her. And after he took her, he just disregarded her. Then her brother, Absalom, waited patiently for opportunity and then killed Amnon. And so now Absalom has run for his life and his half-brother, Amnon, is dead. So David has lost one son, who was killed, and the other who fled, and things are just beginning. It it gets worse, but as we saw last time that we were here, Michael talked about, there is this plot by Joab to bring Absalom back, to restore Absalom and saying, David, you know, gave this scenario, and wouldn't you allow this person to come back? And so David tells this woman, yes, you can bring him back, and then realizes, well, we're really talking about you and your son, Absalom. And so in verse 21, the king said to Joab, very well, I will do it. Go bring back the young man, Absalom. Joab fell with his face to the ground to pay him honor, and he blessed the king. Joab said, Today your servant knows that he has found favor in your eyes, my lord the king, because the king has granted his servant's request. What Joab did was a great thing, bring reconciliation with David and his son. He was trying to bring in this peace There's a lot of things that go into bringing in reconciliation. A lot of times when you're involved with a relationship and maybe you're hurt by someone or you've hurt someone and you say, hey, I'm sorry, that's a good starting point. But sometimes that's not far enough. With the I'm sorry, there also has to be some changes that take place. So if you're, you know, not really... Uh, respecting a person or kind of taking advantage of someone and you say, hey, I'm sorry, I took advantage of you, but then you don't change, you know, and you keep taking advantage, then it's a problem. And so I'm sorry is a, a good starting point, but that's just it. It's a starting point. And with relationships, there has to be a progression. It doesn't just happen. You don't say, I'm sorry. Hey, everything good with you? Yeah, everything's good with me. Okay, now we don't have to do anything more. It involves work. If you're married or in a relationship, you know it involves work. It's not going to just take care of itself. It's not one of those. I don't know what a self-cleaning oven is, but I don't think there really is one. Because even when they're self-cleaning, every now and then you have to clean it. Am I right? So what is that? What is a self-cleaning of? It's a lie. And, and there's no self 
fixing relationships. You have to, you have to get the easy off, and you have to clean them up, and you have to get rid of the junk, and you have to deal with them. So this is a good starting point, or it could be. Joab says, bring back Absalom. David says, okay, go ahead and get him. And then Joab says, thank you for listening. I know that now you have shown me just respect. You've respected this request. Then Joab, verse 23, went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said, he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. So here's where it could have gone further. But David made this little stipulation. He can come back, but I don't want to see his face. Now, why don't you think David wanted to see Absalom's face? What do you guys think, knowing the story and the situation? Any thoughts? Probably wanted to punch him. Okay. It, it could be he was so displeased with the fact that he killed his other son. I just, I don't even want to see you. You guys ever been there? Well, parents, don't answer that. Uh, but, yes, Lola. Kind of gave into it, so his heart wasn't in it. Okay. There's definitely something going on where he doesn't want him to be in his presence. And it could be, too, because people know what have happened. He doesn't want it to look like he approves of what happened. There could just be so much emotion involved that he doesn't want to deal with it. We don't know all the reasons, but he doesn't take this idea of reconciliation very far. He says, you can come back, but then he kind of puts him on house arrest. He has to stay in his area. Now, his house probably wasn't a little, you know, 1,400 square foot. It was probably a good-sized place. We know he had land and those kinds of things. But he's kind of confined to this place. And so he comes back, but he's put into this place, and he doesn't want to see him. He can't see the face of the king. Verse 25, it says, In all Israel there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. What a statement. Okay. (laughs) This is like the ultimate supermodel guy. Okay. I mean, there's just no blemish found in him. I mean, this guy is just strikingly good looking. Whenever this is, I find it humorous. Whenever he cut his hair, the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him. He would weigh it. And its weight was 200 shekels, or about five and a half pounds, by the royal standard. Who weighs their hair? Okay, I'm going to, once a year, I'll cut off my hair and then I'm going to weigh it. Man, do I have a lot of hair. I mean, what a strange thing to do but this is this is telling us something for a reason it's not just saying man this Absalom was a good looking guy let's go on it's telling us that his appearance to those around him was he would draw people by his appearance you know we we've seen that in elections everyone wants to position themselves so they look better so they have you know a, a better presence i mean it was said that John F. Kennedy won the election over Nixon because of the TV appearance. At least that's what some people say. We know image is an important thing that if you look appealing, people are going to be more willing to look at you and and see you. And then the hair, the mention of the hair can be telling because of how he dies later on. We'll see that. But his hair came to play in that, his beautiful hair. And so this little statement about Absalom is there not just to say, man, this was a good-looking dude. It was to tell us that he was very pleasing, had this appearance that was very uh, charismatic with the people. Verse 27, three sons and daughters were born to Absalom. His daughter's name was Tamar, which is interesting. That's the name of his sister. And she became a beautiful woman. Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. That's telling. Two years. 
He's been brought back, but he still can't see his dad for two years. Verse 29, then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king, but Joab refused to come to him. So he sent a second time, but he refused to come. Then he said to his servants, look, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab did go to Absalom's house, and he said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? It just cracks me up. I'm like, man, I'm going to get your attention, dude. And so Absalom said to Joab, look, I sent word to you and said, come here so I can send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me if I were still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face. And if I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. Was Absalom guilty of anything? What was he guilty of? Murder, right? You killed your brother, dude. So what is he doing here? What do you think's going on? Why would he be so persistent? And why would he bring this kind of phrase up? He wants to get out of the house. He's, yeah, he's going stir crazy. He's doing, he can do little when he's confined to this one place. And so he wants to get out. He wants to have more influence. And the reason he says to David, if I've done something guilty, then put me to death, is he already knows he's done something, but he already knows David's not going to do anything. And so David is not going to bring judgment on him because he hasn't for the last six years. And so he's been sent away and now he's brought back. And if David's done nothing yet, he's probably going to do nothing. I'll challenge him. Hey, if you want to kill me, kill me. Otherwise, can't just leave me here. And so he's pushing it. And notice how intense he is about getting what he wants done. He asks Joab, who is, you know, the chief of the king's army. He asks him again. And Joab's like, I don't want to deal with you. You're out of the picture. I don't need to. Do I brought you back. That's good enough. I've done my part. And he goes, OK, I'll set your fields on fire. Now talk to me. And so he's adamant. He wants something to take place so much that he's willing to go to this length. And so finally, he says, if I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. So in verse 33. Joab went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom, and he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. That should be a beautiful thing, but it's too little too late. This is now had an opportunity to fester, not only in Absalom's heart, but probably in David's. I mean, David did nothing when Amnon killed Absalom's sister, or I mean, raped Absalom's sister Tamar. He did nothing. And just turned a blind eye to it. And then Absalom, after a couple of years, just, or after a year, took revenge on Amnon taking his life and David again did nothing. When it came to his children, he just did not know or want to deal with them in a harsh way, so he dealt with them not at all. And so now that he's banished and Absalom runs out of the kingdom and he comes back, there's still this lack of involvement. And after all these years, Nothing has changed. In fact, the bitterness has grown and has developed more and more. And that's what happens with bitterness if we don't deal with it. It'll grow. It'll get worse. And so even if you don't talk about it, if it's there, it just kind of starts to fester. It's like a little splinter. You know, you get a splinter and you might not notice it at first and then all of a sudden it starts to bug you. And then if you're not careful, it'll get infected. I remember I got a splinter when I was a kid and they had to dig it out and it was all pussy and infected and gross. And 
And it was like, all it was was a little splinter, but I didn't do anything about it. I was a kid. I don't know what you're supposed to do with a splinter, you know. It's in there, so I just ignored it. And pretty soon it's all red, and my mom's like, what happened? And I don't know. There's this thing in there. And so we go to the doctor, and it, it turned into a bigger deal. Why? Because it didn't get taken care of. The same thing happens in our relationships. You know, you do something that is hurtful, and you don't deal with it. You don't talk about it, and it festers. And... I don't know about you guys and your relationships, but that can happen a lot if you don't. And every now and then, maybe your wife will come up to you and she just seems distant. Like, what's her trip? You know, what's going on with her? And she doesn't talk to you or she doesn't cook for you or you know she doesn't it's like normally she's nice what's going on you know and then finally you just you have to think well do I want to ask because do I want to know you know do I really want to dig into this and then when you finally do and she tells you well you were a jerk the other day when you said this or you did this or maybe alludes to something like that um, and you have to get in there and deal with it and you have to. You have to face it, and you have to talk it out. Otherwise, it stays in there and festers. So six years now of festering. Uh, and this isn't just a splinter. This is, you allowed my sister to be raped. You did nothing. And then there's the whole tension of these multiple you know, families, um, children, and, and who's going to now be king. You know, as Amnon was the firstborn, so... And then there was another son who isn't talked about, so Absalom might have been one in line for the throne. Anyway, so all that's festering, all that's going on. Now, chapter 15. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. Now, a chariot was something of prestige, a chariot was a Porsche Carrera, okay? A chariot was, you know, the top-of-the-end Land Rover. A chariot was something that was affluent and what people would look at and go, oh, man, that's nice. I don't know if you guys ever see cars, if you're into cars. You know, every now and then you'll see a Ferrari going down, and I drive fast just to go near it. You know, it's like I just want to admire it for a while. I can't drive it, so I just want to drive alongside and stare and look at the person inside and, and just imagine at least they're not happy, right? Um, as they're smiling, you know, rats, they're happy. And so a chariot represents affluence. It represents this kind of a person who has this status. And, and not only does he have a chariot, he has 50 men run ahead of him. So the chariot isn't going too fast, right? Otherwise, it'd run the people over. It's just this procession. Here comes Absalom with his hair flowing in the wind, all five and a half pounds of it, you know, flowing. And there goes Absalom. And everyone goes, oh, there's that. There isn't a blemish on him. Look at from the head to his foot. He's just a gorgeous guy. And look at that hair. And look at that chariot. And what are those guys in front of him? Oh, wow, it's just the procession. And, and so he's making this big deal of how he looks to the people. He would get up early. I think that's interesting because he was diligent. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king or for a decision, Absalom would call out to him. What town are you from? He would answer. Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or a case could come to me, and I would see that they receive justice. He gets up early. He goes to the city gate. The city gate is the place where people would stand to wait to hear from the king, because the king 
was not just the ruler, he was also the judge. He was the one, he was the Supreme Court. He was the one who made the verdicts on these things. So if someone has a, a complaint, hey, my neighbor stole my land or I want this property back because it belongs to my family, they would go to the king and they'd say, hey, king, who gets this land? And the king would have to make these decisions. So the king was involved, but the king probably was busy. And so you can imagine people waiting just to see the king. And then all the murmuring. You guys ever go to the DMV? Isn't it fun when you go there and you stand in line and you wait and they give you a number. Your number is 237. You go sit down and you're looking at the windows now calling number 42. Oh, gosh, you know, I'm going to be ancient by the time I get out of here because I've got to wait. And then you get up there and they say, I'm sorry, it's the wrong form. You got to fill this one out. Well, can I come back? No, you got to go stand back in line. And then you just want to torch the place, you know, and just like, I've had enough of this anarchy. You know, you're rebelling. So you've got a lot of people who are dissatisfied. They're in this place because they're complaining. And here shows uh, here comes Absalom on his chariot with his guys in front of him, and he trances off and he stands there looking good in his you know nice Armani suit of the day, whatever it was. I'm sure he looked splendid. And as he stood there, he would dialogue with them. Hey, you, where are you from? Oh, I'm from this area. Oh, man, yeah, I wish there was someone to represent you. Man, isn't the DMV terrible? Yeah, it is. Man, don't you wish someone could get you to the front of the line and get this taken care of? Yeah, I really do. You know, if I ran the DMV, I would make sure that you were at the front of the line. Really? Yeah, do you want to vote for me? Yeah, I do. I want you to run the DMV because you'll put me at the front of the line. That's the mentality of what's going on here. He's buttering people up. And he says, too bad I can't be the judge if I were appointed judge. David had failed as a judge with his own family. And now Absalom is using this opportunity to bring that awareness to the people who were wanting justice. And you guys probably know, if you ever watch any of those court shows, no one's, there's always one person who's not satisfied, the one who lost, right? So you always have the opportunity to get someone on your side who's in that situation. And so here's Absalom working it. Verse 5 says, Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so look at this. He stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Wow. This guy was smooth and he was good looking. He knew how to work things out and he carefully cultivated this enticing image, the chariots, the horses, the men running before him. He, he would get up early, rise up early. So he was working hard. He knew where to position himself there by the gate. He, he looked for troubled people. Anyone who had a lawsuit was a troubled person. And I'm sure the lines were long, just like they are at the courthouse. He reached out to the troubled people. He would call out to them, hey, you, what, what tribe are you from? He started taking personal interest in them. He sympathized with them. Your case is good. It's right. He started appealing to the people. He never attacked David directly. But he did put this little thought in their mind. If only there was someone who would represent you. And without directly attacking the king, he promised to do better. That if I were the judge, then I would bring justice. And by doing all these things, he stole the heart of the people. If you win the heart, you win the person. And so it's 
vital that we understand that the importance in our own relationships really is similar, but for different reasons. It's about developing relationship to win the heart of the people. I'm surprised at how many times a person's opinions will change when they actually start to see care or concern for them. Uh, I watched a couple of videos, watched a movie called Lord Save Us From Your Followers. I think that's what it was called. Was that what it was called? Lord Help Us From Your Followers, something like that. And it, it sounds just like it, it, the title. It was about these people, how come Christians can make such a bad impression? And I saw this other video. It was of a person up in San Francisco where there was a gay rights parade. And this guy was standing up, this Christian man, with one with a Bible and one with a big billboard that said, you know, if you're gay, you're going to hell, something like that. And so they're standing in the middle of this park telling everyone they're going to hell, and then this kind of fight breaks out, right? These guys are trying to take the sign away, and they're pulling the sign away, and they're yelling at them, you're going to hell, and they're quoting Bible verses at them. And all this commotion is taking place, and it starts where they start throwing blows, and it's just crazy. And then in this movie, Lord Save Us From Your Followers, this guy puts up a confessional booth in this gay pride uh, festival, and the, the confessional booth wasn't so that they would come in and confess to him. When they came in, he confessed to them, hey, I'm sorry for the way Christians have treated you and how we have not been loving and how we have not shown God's love for you and have made you feel like God doesn't care about you. And these people start getting teary-eyed and thank him. When they find out that he wasn't gay and he was just there on his own telling them, I'm sorry for the wrongs that have been done to you, it moved them. And so who do you think in that situation won their hearts? And who do you think in that situation had a voice to now speak into their lives something that is positive and good? It's the person who cared, the person who won their hearts. Absalom knows that. And is doing it for selfish reasons. But he knows how people think. He knows what moves people. Do we? Not that we would use things for selfish reasons, but that we would recognize that there is the opportunity to win a person by winning their hearts. Jesus alluded to this all the time. When he gave a parable about the, the steward and the steward was getting fired because the master didn't want him anymore. And so as he's getting ready to be fired, he goes to all the, the landowners, the people who owe him money, and he settles the de- debt that they owe him. And he says, you owe 10000 just pay seven. And the guy says, okay, and then how much do you owe? How many bushels do you have? Okay, just cut that in half and just give me this. How many you know, barrels of oil do you have to pay my owner or my manager? Oh, okay, yeah, just give him less. And the owner commended him, not because he was stealing, because that's kind of what he was doing. He commended him because he was shrewd, because he knew that if he invested and made friends with people that he would have a position when he lost his job. You see, now these people look at the, hey, you're that guy who saved me money. Come here, you can work for me. Developing that relationship was more important than the money. And that's what Jesus was teaching. If you will invest in people, you will then have a true investment that lasts. And so Absalom understands this. In verse 7, it says, at the end of, get this, four years. Now, I know some translations will say, um, I think it says 40. Does anyone have one of those? It says 40 years. It's actually four years. It was a translation in the Septuagint, but it's actually the end of four years. 
this takes place. At the end of four years, he says, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. What's going to happen here is Absalom is going to go to Hebron and he's going to start a revolt. And we're going to read that right now. But what he is doing is he's starting treason under the disguise of worship, which I think is interesting because he says, hey, let me go fulfill my vows to the Lord. And in his mind, I've got a plan to go and start this revolt against David. And you think, that's just wicked. How can you say you're going to worship God, but really you're starting treason? And it's amazing how, again, low people can go. I know there's been times where my wife shared with me, I didn't get your permission on this one, but I think it's good, um, where before she became a, a follower of Christ, her parents wanted her to go to church. And so they'd say, well, you have to go to church before you can go do something else. And so she wouldn't go to church, but then she would lie to her parents and say, yeah, I did go. And then she thought, how bad is that? I'm lying about going to church. And she felt really bad about it because she is such a tender heart and lovely person. There, did I do okay? Okay. <laughs> That's kind of what's happening here. Absalom is like, let me, in this disguise of worshiping God, go and start treason. You know, you can cloak evil in God's name, and it's been done throughout history. And it's done today still. People use Jesus to make money, use Jesus to try and position themselves politically. People use Jesus for their own gain. And here, Absalom is using the Lord for the same thing so that he can get what he wants. Verse 9, the king said to him, go in peace. And so he went to Hebron. Now, these are the last words that David would ever speak to his son. Go in peace. Which is tragic and yet beautiful. He's asking him to go in peace, but he's going to come back in rebellion. Verse 10, then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Now, what Absalom is doing here is counting on most of Israel to see this as a succession, not as treason. Send out all these people, and when they hear the trumpets blow, say, Absalom is king. Long live King Absalom. And so the idea is Absalom's going to just kind of rise himself up into this position because David's old now, and Absalom's at the gate. Everyone knows Absalom. Oh, yeah, that good-looking guy with the horse and the chariots and the 50 guys. And have you seen the hair on that kid? You know, everyone's just admiring Absalom. And all of a sudden, it's King David's son, and they must be in good standings because he's back in Jerusalem, and we see him at the gate all the time. And so Absalom is starting this revolt, but he's doing it very sneakily, if that's a word. It is. Sneakily is a word from the teacher in the front row. 200 men from Jerusalem, verse 11, had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. And so all these people are with Absalom, but they didn't know what was going on. They're just accompanying him. Verse 12, while Absalom was offering sacrifices, that worship of God, that representation that I'm good with God, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gelanite, David's counselor, to come from Golah his hometown, and so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept increasing. 
So not only did he get this entourage to go and shout out that Absalom is king, he started bringing some of David's own people in. So now it starts looking more and more like Absalom is king. It gained strength and his following kept on increasing. Verse 13, a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. Interesting response. David is a warrior. Do you think David could have mounted up an attack to stop this? Maybe? Possibly. Why didn't he? What do you guys think? Why wouldn't he try and stop this? Why did he just run? Kind of a crazy thing to think about, huh? That I could fight against my son. Also think of the bloodshed that's just going to happen in the city. If he really cares for the people, he's not going to bring this kind of destruction to Israel because now it's divided. It's kind of a civil war taking place. And he's thinking about the people. And so he's just, we're not going to bring the city to the sword or put the city to the sword. Verse 15, the king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our Lord, the king chooses. In other words, we'll fight with you. The king set out and his entire household following him, but he left 10 concubines to take care of the palace. So the king sent out with all the people following him, and they halted at the edge of the city. All his men marched past him along with all the Carathites and Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath. Now these are the men who David faithfully followed David even before he came, became king. Before he had any, any power, these are the people who were with him, and they marched before the king. Verse 19, the king said to Letiah the Gittite, why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. With who? What does he call him? King Absalom. He's relinquishing his crown. Stay with the king. This is an amazing thing to me. What amazes me about this is how David does not try to hold on to a position. That the position of king does not mean as much to David as the people do. See, Absalom won the hearts of the people making them think that he cared for them, but he is actually doing it for selfish reasons. Here, David is giving up this position, this idea, this authority, because he actually does care for the people. And he goes, stay with King Absalom. I'm relinquishing. He's now king. Why would you come with me? Verse 19, it continues, you are a foreigner in exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday, and today shall I make you a wanderer with us? When I do not know where I'm going, go back and take your people with you. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. In other words, I don't even know where I'm going. I'm not king anymore. Go back. It'll be better for you. But Letiah replied to the king, as surely as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, he sees David still as king. Wherever my lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. This is one of those beautiful move me moments, right? You know, this is something you would see in a King Arthur film, you know. No, I'm with you. You're my king. I will bow down. And then all the people, no, I'm Spartacus, kind of a moment. Um, you know, they're all just surrendering and saying, yeah, we're with you. And, and so... They acknowledge you're the king. They recognize David. What they do recognize is that David loves them. David, you've always cared for us. You've always been there for us. We're going to stay here for you. And the loyalty is touching. David said, Letiah, go ahead, march on. So Letiah the Gittite marched on with all the men and the families that were with him. 
The whole countryside wept aloud as the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. Zadok, who is one of the priests, was there too, and all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God at Abathar, offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king, this is David, said to Zadok, take the Ark of God back to the city. If I have found favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it as his dwelling place again. But if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. So the priests are bringing the ark. They're like, okay, David, if you're leaving, we're going to bring the ark, which represents the presence of God with you. We're, we're, we're going to bring God with us so that it comes back. And David says, no, take the ark back. It belongs to the city and to the people. If God is with me, I'll get to see it again back in the city. If not, may he do whatever he, he wants. If I'm, If he's not pleased with me, then I'm ready. It's amazing what guilt can do to us. You see, David did a lot that was not pleasing to God. I don't know about you guys, but I find that I can do a lot that is not pleasing to God. Now, it might not be, you know, committing adultery, killing the guy, the woman's husband, and not dealing with your children, murdering each other. You know, hopefully it's not that severe, but... There are enough things in our lives that can cause guilt where we feel like we have no rights to God. And David just relinquishes all these things. If God says, I'm not pleased with you, then that's it. I'm, I'm fine with that. Because I know that I've done what is not pleasing to God. And what David is doing here is trusting in God more than he's trusting in men. I'm not going to have you try and make God on my side. I'm going to trust that if God is in my on my side, he will work this out because I've done enough to make it so that he's not pleased with me. And he relinquishes this and this is showing humility. It's you know, humility isn't this false sense of I'm not worthy. Humility is an actual understanding of who we really are and a recognition that of, you know, not that I deserve anything, but this is who I am. I recognize my state, and that's humble. And he doesn't even think of himself at all. Verse 27, the king also said to Zadok the priest, Do you understand? Go back to the city with my blessing. Take you, take your son Ahimez with you, and also Abathar's son Jonathan. You and Abathar return with your two sons. I will wait at the fords in the wilderness until words come from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem and stayed there. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. I think this is important because we understand that David is not just positioning himself or just trying to say these things. He's brokenhearted. His son is trying to take over and he's leaving his city, his life. He's on the run again. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Now David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Ahithophel is an amazing character. Ahithophel was someone who gave David counsel for years, advised him wisely on what to do. And now Ahithophel, David's own counselor, is counseling David's son Absalom. Do you remember who Ahithophel's granddaughter was? Bathsheba. What we do to people matters. And so here, Ahithophel, David's counselor, 
sees David take his granddaughter as his wife, kills her husband. What would that do to you? What kind of seed does that put in your heart? How does that fester? And then when the opportunity comes and Absalom comes in, Ahithophel goes over there to his side. And so in a a real sense, David is reaping what he has sown. And he knows Ahithophel is a good counselor and he prays, God, make it foolishness. Because he does feel betrayed. But David also had betrayed Ahithophel. Verse 32, we'll finish the chapter here. When David arrived at the summit where people used to worship, where people where people used to worship God, Hushai the Archite was there to meet him, his robe torn and dust on his head. Again, that's a sign of grieving and mourning. David said to him, if you go with me, you will be a burden to me. Thanks, dude. <laughs> no, he's, he's saying to him, hey, you know, I'll have to take care of you. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, your majesty, I will be your servant. I was your father's servant in past, but now I will be your servant. Then you can help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. Won't the priests Zadok and Abathar be there with you? Tell them anything you hear in the king's palace. Their two sons, Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, and Jonathan, son of Abathar, are there with them. Send them to me with anything you hear. So now David is sending in spies to find out what is going on. So if you go with me, you're of no use to me. But if you go back and start serving Absalom and saying you're with him, you can give word to these, the priest's sons, they can bring it back to me. So Hushai, David's confident, arrived at Jerusalem as Absalom was entering the city. And so here comes David's son coming into the city, proclaiming himself to be the king. Crazy. David's running for his life again. King David is now on the run from his own son. Nuts, huh? Crazy. Anything stand out to you guys in these chapters? Or this chapter? Maybe. I mean, it's an interesting dynamic. And there's a book, A Tale of Three Kings, that deals uh, fictionally with this whole subject where it talks about how David took or became king over Saul, how David lost the king to Absalom, and the difference, you know, David didn't try to take the kingdom from Saul. In fact, he kept showing reverence to Saul as king, and then God took the kingdom from Saul, gave it to David, but Absalom is trying to take the kingdom from David. So there's a big difference in how it happened. David respected Saul until Saul took his own life. Absalom doesn't care. Absalom's taking the kingdom. He's worked the system. And so there's a big difference, but I don't know if David felt like, well, it happened to Saul. But what I do think is that David said, I'm not going to be. I'm not going to do to Absalom what I didn't do to Saul. In other words, Saul tried to keep him from being king. I don't think David was going to try and do what Saul did. Does that make sense? You know how Saul was pursuing David to stop him? David's not doing the same thing. And and I think that is playing on David's mind. I'm not going to do what Saul did. And so I'm not going to fight Absalom. If God wants to fight for me, I'll trust that he does and not me fight for that. Does that answer the question or so, Eileen? And, you know, David, I don't know how old. He's pretty old at this point. He's starting to wane, you know, in his strength. Um, Maybe he's getting tired. I don't know. But that happens a lot in Scripture. We see people, as they get older, they start to just neglect those things. So I don't know. It's, yeah, we don't see it. We don't know if he did, and it's not recorded, but... Yeah, there's no sign of it until, again, he starts making some thoughts afterwards. Um, He knew he had to run for his life because if he would have stayed, there would have been battle. He knew that much. Any other thoughts? I think he's just trying to keep ears on what's going on. I think he's also doing that to protect himself and the people that are with him so that if people are going to come after him, he's aware of it. You know, so he knows, okay, hey, some people are coming after you. Okay, I've got word. Let's, you know, take another step and move somewhere else or take place. So 
I mean, he's not, he's listening, but he's not attacking. So he's kind of taking a, I don't know, what do you call that when a, a sub- passive-aggressive position, I guess. You know, he's like, "Ah, I'm not going to be aggressive, but I am going to keep my ears open. I think that's what's happening more. Covert, Covert, yeah. A black ops operation there. A lot of emotion taking place in these chapters. I mean, we read it, but this is talking about a father and son and a lot of years of history that have built up. There's a lot going on here emotionally. Any other thoughts? Okay, well, let's close in, in a word of prayer, and I think there's some lemon bars left, or a few things there to enjoy some coffee in each other's company. Lord, as we read this story, there are things that stand out, I know, to me, in David's response and his lack of response. Father, things that challenge me on how I respond, and not only how I respond, but the things that we do, Lord and how they leave awake in our lives. And it can be for good or for bad. And David is definitely reaping the things that he has sown, the foolishness that his heart indulged in earlier is showing up now. And it's showing up in the most deep ways in in his family. It's showing up in those areas that are closest to him, his advisors. It it is taking its toll on him. God, we know that that happens to us as well, that the things we do are making our future, that they are paving the way to what our lives will look like. And if we could just grasp that understanding, Lord, and start taking steps that will lead to a healthy future, a wiser future, that we would give up on stupid or foolish decisions, uh, decisions that are just to gratify um, pleasure for a season, decisions that are there that aren't with the thought of others, but are just selfish. If we would disregard those decisions, Lord, we are building a future that has a foundation and hope and promise. And I pray that we would learn those lessons, God, that we would take this example that you've given us and apply it to our lives so that we can live lives that are wiser. Thank you again for this time. Lord, may you continue to enlighten our eyes and our understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.